Hello and welcome to Schoolhouse Equity in Education. I am your host, Allison R. Brown, Executive Director of the Communities for Just Schools Fund, or CJSF, where we provide resources and support to community-based organizations that are working to ensure equity in their schools. Go to cjsfund.org to subscribe to our e-newsletter. If you're tweeting, follow me at Allison R. Brown and tweet about the show with the hashtags C4JS or Communities for Just Schools, both with the number four. On today's podcast, we're going to talk about the possibility and necessity of embracing race. Dr. Andrew Grant Thomas is the co-founder with his wife, Melissa Giroux, of Embrace Race, a multiracial organization that equips grown folks to talk with little people about race in knowledgeable and effective ways. Dr. Andrew, my friend, welcome to Schoolhouse. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Great to be with you, Allison. What is Embrace Race? Embrace Race is a new uh, and emerging community, mostly online, very multiracial. And what we're trying to do is support each other, uh, we being parents, teachers, other adults who care about kids and know that race matters in the lives of kids, uh, trying to support each other to figure out what the importance of race should mean in how we do the work that we do with children, whether that's, again, parenting, teaching, whatever it might be. So why embrace race, both the organization and the action? So why the action embracing race? Because if nothing else, what's going on in the country right now, you know, in our politics, Black Lives Matter with Blue Lives Matter with the movement for Black Lives, with the immigration debate, with so many things, it's become clear if it wasn't already that race really does matter. Race really is implicated in so much of our public life, in our private life, And pretending it doesn't, as many parents and teachers and adults in general, especially white parents, teachers and adults, have done, uh, to pretend it doesn't matter, to take a quote-unquote colorblind approach, you know, it's not serving us well to do that. Instead of pretending race doesn't matter or knowing it matters, but thinking the way to make race less significant in our private and public lives, we need to embrace it. We need to take a very color-conscious approach, and that's not enough, uh, being color-conscious. The question is how to do that in a way that gets the kind of results we want. So that's why, you know, the action of embracing race and the organization, because really for parents especially, there are very few organizations out there who are trying to help people and very few communities that people can join to get supported in doing the embracing race well. So on the school side, you know, there's teaching tolerance and teaching for change and rethinking schools and a number of other organizations that are trying to help teachers. And by and large, they bring, you know, there are things to be said about where they could perhaps do more or do better, but certainly there are resources out there for teachers, if only you know, public school teachers have the time to take advantage of them. But for parents, there's really very, very little. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we are among those parents who want that support and thought we could play a role in creating an organization and a space to have these conversations. You know, there was a Newsweek article um, 
maybe this was a couple of years ago now, about how infants as young as three and four and five months old, not only are they aware of a race or color, but they behave in accordance with what they see. So these infants who can't yet communicate their needs beyond, you know, crying and whimpering and smiling to express joy, were doing those things when presented with people of different races. So that at that young age, children are developing awareness and developing an understanding of race and the conversation about being colorblind or, or not wanting to bring race to children at too young an age was really negated by this, this study. Have you seen that, that work? And, and how has that influenced what you've done with Embrace Race? At six months, babies are able to make racial distinctions, sort of recognize racial distinctions, and, or as you say, mostly distinctions in color, and respond to them. By age three or four, most little kids are showing signs of racial bias. So, in fact, when I mentioned before that there are a number of organizations that are set up to support educators in particular on supporting kids in turn on race, this is actually one of the shortfalls I see. For the most part, they're set up for you know middle school kids, high school kids, there may be a few things aimed at elementary school kids, but by and large, they start too late. Mm-hmm. Not to say that there's lots of good work that can't be done with kids who are, let's say, seven, eight, nine, and up, but there's also good work that can be done earlier and should be done earlier because, again, kids are developing their racial sensibilities long before they're in middle school, even before they're in elementary school. Mm-hmm. So, yes, that's very much informing what we do and, you know, what we will do. Again, we're an emerging organization and we certainly don't pretend to have tons and tons of answers. What we're hoping to do is establish a practice that allows those of us who engage in Embrace Race and are trying to do this work to do the best that we can do. Because at the end of the day, you know, it's fine to say that there isn't research available Mm -hmm. to inform what we do. But, you know, I have two little girls that I need to do the best I can with. I know that you have young kids, right? We need to do the best we can by those kids, regardless of whether or not there's research out there to guide what we do. So the question is, how do we, again, form the community that will help us do the best that we can do, given what we know and what our experiences and circumstances are? So what is Embrace Race, the organization, doing as a, a mostly online community to advance your mission? In very broad strokes, I would say that we do three things. One is encourage and give people a space to reflect on their own orientation toward race. Second is to provide a discussion space and discussion spaces for people to bounce ideas off each other, to discuss experiences with each other, to debate with each other, right? So so to, to put their reflections in a space where other people can reflect on them and and hopefully everyone can benefit. And third, to bring resources, tools, expertise to bear on the reflections and the discussion. So what that means in practice, you know, we have a public Facebook page where we're sending out 
three or four articles we think are relevant every day, mm-hmm. you know, the best content that we can find. Um, that's, you know, much of it is very, very topical. It means that we have a blog on medium.com where ordinary people are talking about, writing about their experiences and thoughts and concerns and, you know, expertise, asking questions. It means that we have a bi-monthly newsletter, so twice a month it goes out and we're presenting the best of the last two weeks. It means that we have, and this is something we've just launched, starting next year, although we've had some version of this already, we're going to have a monthly series of uh, online workshops Mm -hmm. and presentations. So in early July, right after... Castile and Sterling and the police officers in Dallas were killed. In the following week, we had a session, a large conference call session, free, called Supporting Kids of Color in the Wake of Racialized Violence. And we just did a repeat of that more recently. Mm -hmm. So those are the sorts of things we have. Some of the blog posts are especially powerful. And I wanted to just read from a couple of them. So one was written by your wife, Melissa. Why are all the white dolls sitting together on the Target shelf? Supporting kids to push back against racial injustice. And it starts, I guess they only like white people. My five-year-old said the first time she noticed the Our Generation doll section at Target. Screech! I stopped our cart short in the middle of my dash to buy home supplies. They only have white dolls, she explained. Then she shrugged her shoulders and moved past the aisle. And she was right. All the Our Generation dolls on the shelves, upwards of 20 dolls and a dozen or so varieties, were white. Maybe they're out of stock, I suggested. Let's check another time. The blog post goes on to talk about how your children, your daughters, were mobilized to action and mobilized to write to Target headquarters and potentially saw some result from their their action. Will you talk a little bit about your work as parents, you and Melissa, in embracing race and how that shows up for your kids? There are at least two things about that I want to call attention to. One is that, you know, it doesn't happen all the time, but it's not so unusual, right? Whether it's the case of dolls or books or movies, to see for whiteness, to have an outsized presence. Mm-hmm. We live in a country now where very close to half of all public school kids are kids of color, mm-hmm. non-white children. And yet the toys, you know, there are many, many stores like Target, like, you know, more specialized toy stores, where the representation of kids of color is far behind the representation of real kids of color in the real child population. You know, kids are amazing at picking up on patterns, Mm -hmm. certainly patterns uh, around race, you know, whether it's what dolls are on the target shelves or, you know, who lives in what neighborhoods, who goes to what schools, who takes what classes in those schools, those sorts of things, who gets sent to the principal's office for disciplinary reasons. So this is a place where we absolutely cannot pretend that kids will somehow miss it. They absolutely see it. Mm-hmm. And if they didn't see it, then they have friends who see it are going to point it out to them. The question is, how do they explain the patterns they see? And then what do they do about it? And how do they feel about it? Mm-hmm. So what they do about it, the other thing I wanted to point out, you know, it speaks to sort of how we're trying to parent. And by no means, again, I'm 
I'm not an expert, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to sort of say that what we do is what others should do or that, you know, we don't wish all the time that we didn't do things differently or better. But what we try to do that we think is right is, you know, first of all, acknowledge what our kids see, sort of validate their observations. So we never say, you know, never mind that or, you know, you're wrong about that or that's not important. Mm -hmm. We want to talk about it. And then in a thing like, you know, the all white dolls in a a section of Target, we want to say, you know what? In many cases, there's actually something you can do about this. And minimally, you can make your concern known. Mm -hmm. You may not be able to get action on it. You know, we can't make Target put an array of dolls on their shelves. But you can certainly let Target know that, one, you saw it and you think it's a problem and here's why. And two, that you'd like something to be done about it because you think it has consequences. So that agency piece... The idea that kids can act in the world. Mm -hmm. So the work we do with children is not just about preparing them for actions that they can take when they're older. Kids are actors now. So, you know, speaking of agency and really harnessing the power of young people and educating them as advocates, there is another blog post on the Embrace Race blog. It's called Let's Talk About Reparations. What does the publishing industry owe our kids? Just an excerpt from this piece, which is about the lack of children's books about and for kids of color. An excerpt that starts with, obviously, the publishing industry can't simply write a check to make up for excluding and or distorting kids of color and Native children for the past hundred years. But... What if they offered vouchers to any parent interested in building a home library filled with mirror books? What if publishers paid to build staff and stock libraries in the many public schools that have gone without for decades? What if they diversified the publishing industry by adopting fellowship programs like the ones used effectively by HBO or Disney? Or... What if the big five publishers promised to publish 25 debut authors from each underrepresented group every year for the next 10 years and gave them multi-book deals? This post is an example of, you know, a very specific target in the racial justice advocacy frame, in the Embrace Race frame, and a call to action for children's publishers. Is that something that you're looking for in the blog posts that you provide and some of the best practices that you talk about? Is that part of your mission? Is that what you think is most effective? Or is that just kind of one part of the overall puzzle of available tools in the arsenal of embracing race? It's definitely just one tool. And You know, the folks who write for Embrace Race aren't speaking for Embrace Race, right? So Mm -hmm. we absolutely welcome a range of viewpoints. That's not to say we welcome everything. So, you know, I don't want to get into a debate about whether or not race matters Mm -hmm. in Embrace Race. You know, there are lots of other places where that happens. And, you know, frankly, I'm exhausted with that conversation. Mm-hmm. I think it is beyond abundantly clear that race matters, and there are lots of other people who agree that race matters and still have lots of substantive disagreement about how it matters and mm-hmm. when it matters and why and what we do about it. So let's talk about that. So, you know, it's not, you know, what 
Veda, the author there, wrote, I do agree, as it happens, with what she said, but it's, I don't need to agree. I didn't need to agree to think that uh, she's making a valuable contribution. Yeah. There are at least two pieces, though, that I really do want to, again, underline about what she wrote that I love and why I think it's so important. One is, you know, this area of books, the vast majority of parents certainly want their kids to engage with the books, often engage their young children in reading themselves. Mm-hmm. In a way, it's sort of the low-hanging fruit of you know, racial justice and equity mm-hmm. as applied to kids, right? Mm-hmm. So in other words, it's pretty easy. You know, I can pick up a book and, um, you know, if I get quote-unquote diverse books, you know, I can think that I'm doing good work. And indeed, I am doing good work. Yeah. But the point is that it's a sort of a, a common point for many, many parents, this issue of children's books. So we can talk about that and everyone knows that we're talking about that. And, you know, what Zeta says is true, but clearly, again, kids of color have been hugely underrepresented in books and or and have been presented in, in a certain sort of way as mm-hmm. a rule, which many of us find problematic. And that's because largely of the way the publishing industry is set up. What I like about what Zeta is doing is, you know, rather than simply say, oh, yes, you know, we need more diverse books and that's as far as I'm going to go with that thought process, right? She's clearly going much further. Mm-hmm. And she's saying, you know what? There actually are some at least partial solutions worth talking about. Uh, here are some, you know, let me talk to some other people who've done a lot of thinking about it as she has. And then the question is, if we agree that these are partial solutions and that some are actually quite attractive and even doable, mm-hmm. how do we bridge the gap, right, from recognizing that to actually implementing those solutions? Yeah. Well, that has a lot to do with the collective sort of will and power of the parents, teachers, others who constitute Embrace Race and many other communities, right? We can make that happen. Mm-hmm. So, you know, do we have the power of our conviction? She's putting it out there. So, in other words, it's a challenge to the publishing industry, but it's also a challenge to us, right? Mm-hmm. Are we willing to come out of our homes and not simply, you know, sort of issue a weak call for diverse books and books that do this and that, but actually say, look, publishing industry, Mm-hmm. This is what we want to see, and we're willing to put our dollars and our voices behind it. Again, this agency question, right? The agency of adults and the agency of kids. We make the world. What are we willing to do to make it the way we want it to be? I guess the message to parents is also, before you come out of your home and take this up as an issue, we want you to be well-equipped, <laughs> right? So mm-hmm. here are the tools and you mention on the, the website and in the, the materials about Embrace Race, you want folks to be racially literate. What does that mean? What I mean by it is really a combination of a couple of things. It's really heart and mind, right? So the heart piece is, you know, how will my daughters feel about themselves as racialized beings, right? Mm-hmm. As, you know, as biracial girls, or, you know, it may be that one of them who's darker will tend to be identified as African-American right now. The other who's lighter may well be identified as sort of mixed race or biracial. Mm-hmm. But they're certainly, uh, as all of us are, they're racialized beings. So how do they feel about their own racial identities? How do they feel about others with different racial identities, right? Do they see those other people as you know, equally and fully human as they are? 
what kind of uh, sensibility do they take into the world, in other words, right, toward people on the basis of race? The second piece is a, is a head piece, which is the analysis. You know, as I said before, kids see patterns very clearly. Human beings in general are extremely good at pattern recognition mm -hmm. and especially recognizing social patterns um, and specifically racial patterns in this case. So, but what understanding do they bring to the analysis of those, right, to the explanations they offer of those patterns that they see? Mm -hmm. You know, so if you, to use the example I offered before, if your family's driving through a neighborhood and uh, you see that you know, all the people in the street are African-American and then a mile down the road, you know, virtually all the people are white or Asian-American or whatever it might be. What's the explanation I bring to that? Is it that, gosh, I guess, you know, people who look alike just want to live together? You know, it's just a matter of personal preference. Yeah. Or do you understand that, well, you know, many, many neighborhoods have a particular history. Sometimes there's hostility involved. There are messages sent, but some people are welcome and some people aren't. There's an understanding that, you know, the neighborhood actually used to look very different. It used to be perhaps all white and now it's all black. Why did that happen? Mm -hmm. That doesn't happen randomly. You know, do they understand about things like zoning, you know, for multifamily homes or single family homes, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Right. Sometimes the story is quite complicated, but the explanations we offer uh, can be deceptively simple. So the head and the heart, that's what I mean by racial literacy. Does that make sense? That makes great sense. So with that racial literacy, it's about conversation, right? So I remember mm -hmm. I was litigating at the Department of Justice in the Civil Rights Division when Eric Holder was appointed Attorney General. And his first stop within the agency was to the Civil Rights Division to say, we are open for business again, we're here again, and we have the unique platform through which to really make sure that we are enforcing the nation's laws and also talking about race, because we have been a nation of cowards, essentially. And, and mm -hmm. is exactly what he said. We have been a nation mm -hmm. of cowards when it comes to talking about race, just talking about race. We're afraid of it. We're scared to do it. Your Embrace Race and the blog and the site and your mission is about that very thing that strikes fear in the hearts of so many people. How do you have dialogue about race in a way that is healthy and constructive and that gets beyond that fear? You know, Allison, I'd say, uh, we'll let you know if we get it done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be, it's hard. It's a process. Yeah, it's yeah. going to be hard. Yeah. It's a process and it's experimental and, you know, frankly, it may not work. It may not work mm -hmm. as well and certainly as quickly as we hope. Part of the answer, though, I feel pretty comfortable saying is that we have to make it routine. Mm -hmm. This is not... Gosh, some horrible thing happens and here's Embrace Race, you know, to figure out how you get through the moment. We will do that. We think that's really important. We want to take advantage, frankly, of when more people are paying attention as when, you know, some horrible thing happens in the news. Mm -hmm. But we're also going to be there every day between those moments. 
And if you want to show up and, you know, even as it were, eavesdrop on other people having a conversation, whether it's a literal back and forth on our Facebook page or, you know, one of our wonderful writers who's, you know, offered some thoughts um, or asked some questions you know, or newsletter or whatever it is, some of the other platforms will be starting up, hopefully, in, in the months and years to come. You can do that, right? And if mm-hmm. you want to participate, it's a routine conversation. You know, it's not, you know, the way most of us experience, the way all of us experience race routinely is not about, right, people being shot by police or political candidates, you know, talking about building walls, right? It's the routine, everyday thing. Here's a fascinating fact, or I don't know if it's a fact, but it's an informed bit of evidence about, you know, race and its effect in a more routine way than those very spectacular things. I just came across this, and having done race work for a long time, I was surprised by this. I came across a bit of research that did some estimates, and that's the best we can do because we don't have the data to Mm -hmm. answer the question that the paper asked. But the question was, how many white people in the United States say that their extended family, that their extended family is multiracial? Mm-hmm. And the, actually, I'll ask you, Alison, what's your guess <laughs> according to this paper? The percentage of white people who say their extended family is multiracial? Mm-hmm. I would guess 35%. 60%. Wow. Right? So without even getting into, did they really all mean the same thing by extended family? And mm-hmm. what did they mean anyway? Without getting into all of that, that's a huge number. Mm-hmm. Right? So there's been lots of attention, relatively large amounts of attention to the number of, you know, so-called interracial marriages and, you know, biracial kids and the multiracial population. But if race becomes salient even to white people who more than people of color certainly are likely to say that it's not really relevant Mm -hmm. to their lives. But if race becomes salient because, you know, some member of what you recognize as your family is non-white, well, 60%, you know, and that number, of course, is getting bigger all the time. 60% of white people are saying, you know what, suddenly race is relevant to me in a way it may not have been before. And what does that mean, right, is, is a whole other uh, sort of complex set of issues. But race really matters, right, from that level to, again, the more spectacular things we're more uh, familiar with. So how does it show up in the context then of extended families? What is the work we need to do so it shows up in a more than less healthy way? You know, these are the sorts of things uh, we want to, again, have people reflect on, Talk about with each other, you know, with with your peers, and where we can bring the opinions, the expertise, the work of people who really have devoted their days to thinking about better than worse answers to those questions. Uh, and we'll see where we come out. But minimally, I'm hopeful. You know, not so much that I, for example, having engaged with Embrace Race for the next X number of years that I will have, you know, amazing answers to questions that I cannot answer now, but I feel certain that I will be more thoughtful and informed than I am now. You know, today's climate in this country and the way in which political climate has infiltrated social climate in a way that I've certainly never seen 
the undercurrent that has been there for generations is really coming to the surface. And that undercurrent is very much born of race. So how are you using the opportunity of the political climate now, the very challenging political climate that we are seeing, to really push for embracing race? Certainly the political climate is fortunately and unfortunately doing a lot of the work for us, right, in terms of lifting up the importance of embracing race, uh, where embracing race really is understood to mean taking race seriously, talking Mm -hmm. about it. It's a lot harder now than it was even two years ago, uh, certainly than it was 10 years ago, for people to insist that race doesn't matter. You know, a lot has been said about how when Barack Obama became president in 08, a lot of people said, now we were post-racial. You almost never hear that anymore. (laughs) You don't hear that anymore. Uh, It's pretty hard to say that we're post-racial. So that's the first step, right, is admitting that race is an issue and having more and more people willing to do that. And then the second thing, though, is wherever you are ideologically or politically on race, you know, whether you think Black Lives Matter is a good thing or a not-so-good thing, Blue Lives Matter, you know, all of this movement work that's happening, it is definitely a turbulent time, mm-hmm. right? There's a lot going on. And again, parents and teachers and anybody who you know, cares about their community, whether that's the immediate community or the nation, uh, anyone who certainly cares about a child, uh, whether it's your own child or someone else's child or children in general. Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of us are asking, okay, what do we do? So race matters. And, you know, we're all socialized around race in one way or another in ways that are helpful or not. And I want to be helpful, right? I want to be healthy. And I don't know how to do that. What should I know about my practice as a parent or a teacher, you know, that will help me nurture a child who will thrive in this world and maybe even be an an agent for change for the better? Mm -hmm. I don't know the answer to that question. So I think more and more people are asking that. And that, by the way, includes parents of color and people of color. Um, I'll just offer one little factoid. MTV did a survey, I think it was in 2014, possibly 2015, where they interviewed millennials. They surveyed millennials mm-hmm. uh, of color and white millennials. And they one of the questions was, in your childhood home, did you talk about race? 80% of white millennials said, we never, ever talked about race at home explicitly. But 50% of millennials of color said they never, ever talked about race. Oh, that's surprising. So that's not to say that the other 50% talked about race routinely, and it certainly doesn't speak to how well they spoke about race, right? How openly and, you know, did they do research? How do they talk about race if you don't know? And those are the youngest adults, right? Those are the ones that many people think are supposed to keep moving us in the right direction. Well, we have lots of reasons to believe that Even the young adults are no more enlightened, as it were, no more open-minded, no more racially literate than their parents or grandparents were. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's literally the case. We need work, right? It doesn't just happen. We need to do the work. So Embrace Race is here to try to help us all do the work. Andrew, how do you know that Embrace Race, your project, your brainchild is working? 
on one level, we don't know in the big scheme of things because we're new. You know, the Facebook page went up um, maybe 15 months ago, August of 2015. Mm-hmm. And almost everything else went up in March and April of this year. So we're new. So in terms of, you know, sort of formal evaluations and, you know, there's lots of programming that over time we want to bring online that hopefully will have the effect. Uh, so we don't know. More informally, though, there are a number of indicators that things are at least proceeding in, in a way that we want. Mm-hmm. So you know, across our various platforms, so again, the blog and the Facebook page and so on, we have you know, over 10,000 people who subscribe to one or the other, right? Who like us on Facebook and, and show up regularly or subscribe to the bi-monthly newsletter and so on. When we had, I mentioned the conference call where we had two experts, one of them a child therapist, the other a school, you know, K-12 school diversity officer. Mm-hmm. You know, we had a Q&A and asked a lot of audience submitted questions about supporting kids of color in the wake of racialized violence. You know, we advertised that over the course of a week, less than a week, I think it was six days, and more than 600 people registered for that conference call. I think we've established that there is this tremendous demand for the work we're trying to do and the space we're trying to provide. And we hear, you know, a lot of feedback, both from that call and from, you know, various articles. Uh, We see people engaging, you know, having vigorous debates, not only on our Facebook page, but on some of the many pages that we share with. And people saying that they're having conversations and thinking thoughts, you know, reflecting on um, incidents, you know, or piece of their childhood that they had never engaged with as thoughtfully before. And that's mm-hmm. true of our writers, for example, on the blog. So, you know, what it all shakes out to, uh, frankly, I, I cannot say, but people are engaging with this material uh, and with their own lives or this part of their own lives in a way that many of them didn't. And that certainly seems like a promising start. Well, Andrew, I want to thank you so much for spending this time with me today talking about Embrace Race. And and I will point people to your website, embracerace.org, where if they are doing some digging and they see the advisory group there, they might come across a familiar face there. I have the great (laughs) privilege of being on the advisory group for Embrace Race. I'm really excited about the work that you're doing, excited that you're taking this to parents, which is, you know, often, I think, uh, an underrepresented group when we talk about best practices and, and technical assistance. And so I'm appreciative of your time today and of your work generally. So thank you so much, Andrew. Allison, you're awesome. Can I say, well, let me ask you a question and say one last thing. Of course. And I'm going to ask you to also share how to find you. Other than the website. Can I mention the crowdfunder? Yes. So the crowdfunder is on Crowdrise. So it's www.crowdrise.com slash embrace race. So this crowdfunder is for a monthly series of conference calls and webinars with guests, in most cases experts in their fields each of them on an area, right, in the kids and race space, right? So kids, uh, race, nurturing kids, parenting, and so on. 
So the um, supporting kids of color in the wake of racialized violence, in effect, was a prototype of what that'll be. Right? So there'll be 12 of those through next year, and the crowdfunder will support you know, us being able to uh, pay those experts, you know, transcribe, you know, get the equipment, all of that kind of stuff. So certainly we'd uh, love support from folks uh, to whom that sounds like a worthwhile investment. Mm -hmm. If you go to, certainly on Facebook, Embrace Race, one word, you know, our Facebook page will show up. If you go to medium.com, which is essentially a blog site, uh, and you search for Embrace Race, one word, it'll show up. The other thing I wanted to mention was... This is a multiracial community, uh, as you said, Allison, early, mm-hmm. you know, in a year, let's say, you know, I'm hoping that it will be a multiracial community, mostly populated by people of color. Mm-hmm. And which to say absolutely, definitely, including white people, but mostly populated by people of color, because I think increasingly, you know, for one thing, the term people of color, you know, sort of bridges or obscures a lot of very, very important diversity and distinction. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't talk about typically a community of people of color and white people. We talk about a community of Black, Latinx, Asian American, Native American, Muslim, and mixed race, and so on, knowing that all of those, you know, also obscure a lot of diversity. But the point is we want more than critical masses of all of those groups. Uh, and in the end, it ends up being a, you know, certainly more non-white than white. Uh, and the other reason is, you know, we are all, even along for those broad distinctions, we're all differently situated. Uh, and while we think there's tremendous benefit possible from Embrace Race to anyone and everyone, uh, we do think that people of color and certainly black and brown people are differently situated in general than white people are. And yet most of the few resources available in this kids race parenting space really implicitly or, or explicitly have white people in mind, Mm -hmm. right? So in other words, they're produced largely to support white people, which again uh, is something we want to do as well, but I'm really feeling the lack of support for people of color doing this work. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to to mention that when you talk about, you know, sort of what constituents are the center of our constituency. Dr. Andrew Grant Thomas is the co-founder with his wife, Melissa Giroux, of Embrace Race, a multiracial organization or community that equips grown people to talk with little people about race in knowledgeable and effective ways. Thank you again, Andrew. Thank you for the invitation. Thanks to all of you for listening in. Remember that you can follow me at Allison R. Brown on Twitter and sign up for the Communities for Just Schools Fund newsletter at cjsfund.org. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful week.